Hear now the reading of God's holy word. Psalm 67, to the chief musician on Neganoth, a psalm or song. God, be merciful unto us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us. Selah, that thy way may be known upon earth, thy saving health among all nations. Let the people praise thee, O God. Let all the people praise thee. O let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for thou shalt judge the people righteously and govern the nations upon earth. Selah. Please turn over to Matthew chapter 6, verse 9 for our text. Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, page 966. Our Lord teaching his disciples to pray and through them teaching us. Verse 9. After this manner, therefore, pray ye, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your glorious name, a name to be hallowed above all things. We ask that as we consider your word, that you would grant us your mercy, cause your face to shine upon us, bless us with the knowledge of your will, so that we might pray as is suited to your majesty. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. This evening we will consider Hallowed Be Thy Name. Last week we looked at the preface to the Lord's Prayer. We saw that we are to pray with and for others from Ephesians 6, the plural commandments and pronouns, you being all of you Ephesians, praying together, having the whole armor of God. We also saw that our prayers in this specific context, when we pray our Father which art in heaven, were to come to God reverently as the Father over all, of whom the whole family in heaven and upon earth is named. We saw this in Ephesians 3, 11 through 21. We saw the apostle bowing his knee to the Father in reverence, in worship and respect coming through the mediation of Christ, having access with boldness as children to a father, able and ready to help us. Now let us turn back to Psalm 67 and consider a few things from verses 1 through 4 of that psalm. First, the title to the psalm is very interesting, to the chief musician on Neganoth, a psalm or a song. Now, the chief musician was the Levite who oversaw the music in the temple, sometimes called the choir master. He was inspired by David's directions from God in the Levitical reforms made. This position was literally put into place while David was king and with the prophets who spake in the name of the Lord at that time. Now, the word neganoth is a song with a stringed instrument. Then it says, a psalm or a song. Now you'll be interested to know that in the Septuagint, when it refers to Neganoth, it uses the word humnois, and the word psalm is psalmos, and the word song is odes. In other words, among the hymns, a psalm of songs, in other words. So here you have the psalm, the hymn, and the song 
all meeting in one place. Some people, when they misread Ephesians 5.19 or Colossians 3.16, they say, see, psalms are not the only thing you're supposed to sing. You're also supposed to sing hymns and songs. 100% agree. Yes, we ought to sing the psalms. We ought to sing the songs and we ought to sing the hymns. Here's one of them. Psalm 67 is all three. It is a psalm, it is a song, and it is a hymn, according to the Septuagint, which is what the apostle is referring to in the book of Ephesians and Colossians. These are God-breathed compositions or spiritual, which all three, psalms, hymns, and songs, are all spiritual or inspired by God. Notice there verse 1. God be merciful unto us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us. Selah. First notice, God be merciful unto us and bless us. Can God bless us without mercy coming first? Is that possible? It is not. God cannot bless a sinful people in our natural state, fallen in Adam, he must show us mercy, grace, or pity, which is what this word means, before blessings can flow to us from this grace. And not only are we taught to petition God to be merciful unto us, what else are we taught? Cause his face to shine upon us. God is the cause of his grace. God is the one that moves, remember Christ's countenance shining as the sun? He's the one that moves himself to cause that grace to shine upon us. We cannot move God toward ourselves. We cannot cause his face to shine upon us in grace, in healing, in salvation, and blessing. But we know that God can, and that's why we're taught to pray this. God be merciful unto us because we don't deserve to come before you. We don't deserve your blessings. Bless us and you initiate this action of grace of causing your face to shine upon us. Verse 2, what's the purpose of this shining of God's face and mercy? That thy way may be known upon earth, thy saving health among all nations. Now here again is a parallel. And when we see parallels, it helps us to understand what the terms mean. In fact, you can learn the meaning of words in ancient languages that use parallels like this by the illustration. Well, what does the next clause say? Okay, so look here. Thy way, thy saving health. Those are the same thing. They're talking about the same thing. God's way and God's saving health are talking about the same thing. Then notice, upon earth. Well, what else? among all nations. Those are talking about the same thing. Now it's very interesting here. We have the way of God and the saving health of God. We have the earth where man dwells and the nations where men dwell. First then, man glorifies God. How? First he must know the ways of God. And that's what he's praying. God's grace and salvation coming, the shining of his face, verse 1, the purpose being that the way of God may be known upon the earth. Now, what did the nations of the earth know about God at that time? Jack squat, nothing. 
They knew idols. They worshipped graven images. They were given over to a reprobate mind. And so this prayer is that those who cannot glorify God because they do not know him might come to know him. And we'll look at that, God willing, as Pastor Black will teach us about the second petition. But here notice, God causing his way to be known by bringing his mercy and shining his face. This is a purpose clause. The Hebrew letter Lamed, that thy way. The purpose or result of God's grace, blessing, and causing his face to shine is the knowledge of God's holy way, not merely in Israel, but upon earth. This word earth encompasses everybody, including the Jews, but not exclusively the Jews. And you'll notice, thy saving health among all nations. Now, you may have heard the Jews use the term, or you might have heard me use the term of the goyim. That's the Hebrew word here. Those outside of God's covenant were called the goyim, all those nations out there, the ethne in the Septuagint. All those nations cut off from God's life, they need salvation to come to them. And the purpose for which we're praying for God's mercy is so that they may know God and they may have his saving health among them. All the goyim know the salvation, the health, the victory of God's way. His path to grace now and glory hereafter. This is saving health. Yeshua is the word. They like to say, oh, you shouldn't say Jesus. You should say Yeshua. Well, it means salvation. It's the exact word here, Yeshua. The salvation of God should be known to all the nations. They delivered from their sins. They taught the ways of God. And then verse 3 repeats a similar idea. Let the people praise thee, O God. Let all the people praise thee. Here, this is very interesting. He uses in this inspired context, the prophet uses different words. Eretz is the earth. Goyim is the nations, and now the people, a third word. These are those under a common government or prince. These people or these nations, they are called upon to give thanks, to confess God's name, to laud. That's what they're asking, and we are taught to ask God to let the people do. You have the power, God, to cause this to come to pass. So God, let them praise thee, let all the people praise thee, not just one nation under God, all nations under God, all nations praising and confessing, giving thanks and lifting up his name. Now, all men have a natural duty to praise God. This is called the law of the creator. This is why parents have an authority over their children. He who creates gives laws. That's the law of the creator. Who created all the nations of the earth? God. Who has the right to give them laws? God. Who is the superior of all men? God. So all men owe a duty of praise to God. Do they fulfill that duty? Do the nations of the earth actually praise God? No. But when God sends his mercy, when God sends his grace, 
When God blesses his people, causing his face to shine, when the knowledge of God consequently comes to the people on the earth and his saving health is known among all nations, they are enabled to glorify God as he requires of them in his law. They cannot do it in the strength of nature. In fact, the law can command them as it does in their heart that they should be glorifying the one true and living God, but the law commands it does not enable. It is the gospel that enables men to glorify God, to lift up his name in praise. And that's why we're taught to pray this. God's mercy, God's blessing, God shining his face, giving the knowledge of his way, sending his salvation among all nations. That's the gospel. That's what we're praying. That's what we sing in Psalm 67. And because the gospel has come, men are enabled to glorify God. Verse 4. Oh, let the nations be glad and sing for joy. Here, the word nations is the populace assembled together kind of like one big group of people gathered together in one place. Let them be glad. Let them sing for joy. Here's another word, not just the earth, not just the nations, not just the people. Here again, a separate word is used. Those people under or ruled by a magistrate. You might say the populace at large as opposed to their rulers. The populace gathered together. Let them be glad and sing for joy. For thou, here's why they should be glad and sing for joy. For thou shalt judge the people righteously. This word judge is related to what we saw. Remember the priest's custom, mishpat? The priest's custom with the people was to take the meat while it was still in boiling or in a saucepan or whatever, and they grab it and pull out. Oh, look, I just got this. Providence gave me this. And they would steal before the people could give it to be burnt and the fat would be burnt, they said, I want my portion now. That was their mishpat. That was their government. That was their judgment. That was their custom. We, however, will be glad and sing for joy, not when ruled by superstitious and wicked people in the church, but rather when God judges the people because he'll do it righteously. He will do it in a level way. In everything being right. That's the idea of righteous. It's a level place. God's not going to skew his law and his justice. It's going to be perfectly level. Everything's going to be right. Everything is judged exactly as it deserves. No spin, no bribes, no injustice, no skews. You know, the, the reporters now, when they want to tell you facts, they always lie to you. They do it in a couple of ways. One is they skew the facts without giving you all the facts. Or they tell you things that are partially true without the rest of the story. They lie to you. But God does no such thing. Everything is just. Everything is righteous. And when he governs the nations as a shepherd, as Jehovah led Israel by a cloud and fire, it's the same verb as Exodus 13, 21. God will govern the goyim. He'll govern all those nations on the earth as a shepherd brings his flock. I note then this doctrine. In our natural state, we are utterly unable and indisposed to honor God properly. In our natural state, we are utterly unable 
and indisposed to honor God properly. When we pray, hallowed be thy name, we're saying, God, we need people to honor you, to glorify you. But men do not honor you. Men do not glorify you. They provoke your wrath. So you must be merciful, O God, if any are to sing your praise. If your way is to be known upon the earth, you can't deal with us in strict justice. You can't come down and crush us for all of our sins. We need your mercy, God. We need you to cause your face to shine upon us because all that we cause is your wrath to come down upon us. If God's mercy must come before his blessing of us, as we saw in verse 1, then he must save. He must cause us to do that natural duty of praising and obedience. He must restore us to saving health so that we can be glad and rejoice in him, so that we can delight in being governed by God rather than spurning or rebelling against his government. It is God's grace. It is God's mercy toward us because naturally we can't glorify him. We can't sing his praise. We can't know his saving health. And so we need God to act so that we may hallow his name and so that the nations may hallow his name. This is a rebuke to those who say that God shows mercy to us in response to our good works, or at least to some sincere movings toward him. And after you sincerely take a step toward God, he'll take a step toward you. And then if you take another one, he'll take another one toward you. These are called preparatory works or preparationism, or sometimes it's called the merit of condignity or the merit of congruity. If you just do your part and you're good enough with the light that God gives you, he responds by giving you more grace. Remember, Chrysostom even had this nonsense. God chooses his friends based off of their worth. Like every wise person chooses their friends based off of their worth. If that were the case, if God chose based off of their worth, how many people would God choose to be saved? I can show you a zero, nobody. Well, he would have chosen his son and that's it. Nobody else. Because nobody else is worthy. Nobody else is virtuous. Nobody else is righteous. God doesn't show us mercy or cause his face to shine because we caused his face to shine. Because we deserved his mercy. No one deserves mercy. Not by our supposed piety or merit. Not by our decision. You know, some people believe God regenerates in response to a decision. They say faith first, or what they mean by faith is come to an altar call, and then God responds by giving you regeneration, by giving you new life. No, you will not believe in God. You will not know his way. You will not sing his praise. You will not have his saving health unless he shows mercy first. Let us then rejoice in the free grace of God who loved us first, that we might love him. And let us learn to pray for God's mercy and blessing and causing his face to shine so that we might know him, praise him, be restored in salvation, and that all the nations might re rejoice to be governed by him. Please turn over to Psalm 83. 
page 634. Psalm 83, we'll read verses 16 through 18. Now, if you'll remember singing this psalm, there are some really rotten and wicked people that are described in this psalm. This is an imprecatory psalm asking God to destroy these people, and here's the summation of it. Fill their faces with shame, that they may seek thy name, O Lord. Let them be confounded and troubled forever, Yea, let them be put to shame and perish, that men may know that thou, whose name alone is Jehovah, art the Most High over all the earth. Here, notice a couple of things. First, he prays for their faces to be filled with shame in verse 16. This is a song or psalm of Asaph against Edom, the Ishmaelites, the Moabites, the Hagarenes, Gebal, Ammon, Amalek, Philistines, Tyre, all of them have to be brought low. They have to be shamed. They have to be judged. Why? What's the purpose? That they may seek thy name, O Lord. Now, what is it to seek the name of God? Well, it's the same thing as to seek God himself. Do you know why that is? God is his name. The name of God, when we say, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, what are we saying? Well, we believe in him as a person. We also believe in his name, by faith in his name, which is his person. They are to seek God when they fall down and are shamed in their faces, when they are judged, when the imprecation is fulfilled and all the curses are poured out, the end is that they may seek God, that is, his name. God has the name above every name. It is the name of power and of might. It is that name revealed in the scriptures, revered in his worship, called upon by men in their distress, trusted in by men for salvation, hallowed in our prayers and lives. Remember what we pray. Hallowed be what? Thy name, God himself, is to be hallowed among men. And then notice there verse 18. That men may know that thou whose name alone is Jehovah art the most high over all the earth. He is I am. He is Ha'on. He is the one that is. He is the he that liveth that we saw in Revelation 1. His name is is uniquely Jehovah. There is no comparable name. There is no name above his. This is the name above all names. I am. And this name, Jehovah, I am, he says it is separate. That's what the word alone means. It means you close out everything else and this stands by itself. His name is exclusive. His name alone is Jehovah. And then he says, Elyon the Most High, over where? Over just the land of Israel? No, over all the earth, including Moab, including the Ishmaelites, including the Hagarenes, including all of these wicked enemies. He's no tribal deity. 
He's not a, a God of the valley, so if you fight in the hills, you'll be fine. He's not a God of the hills, so you fight in the valley, you'll be fine. He is the God over all the earth. His exclusive name, Jehovah, His Highness, His Majesty, He rules over all of His enemies and His friends. I note then this doctrine. God's name is Himself. And God's name is all those ways he makes himself known. God's name is himself and those means by which he makes himself known. Upon the heathen here being shamed, humbled, and defeated, upon their conspiracy being broken forever, they are then in God's purpose to seek his name. They are to seek God himself whose name is I Am. But what else were they to seek about God? Open to Psalm 8, please. Page 593. We'll see what the name of God entails. Psalm 8. To the chief musician upon Gittith, a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name. Where? Where do we see the name of God? In all the earth who has set thy glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings hast thou ordained strength because of the enemy, uh, enemies that thou mightest still the enemy and the avenger. When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man? that thou art mindful of him and the son of man, that thou visitest him, for thou hast made him a little lower than the angels and hast crowned him with glory and honor. Thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, yea, and the beasts of the field, the fowl of the air and the fish of the sea and whatsoever passeth through the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name. Where? In all the earth. What then is the name of God? Well, we would call this the works of creation and providence. That's where the name of God is declared. We see the excellence of his name in the earth. How? Well, first, we see him stilling the enemy and the avenger by little babies. Then we see the working of God in the heavens, the moon and the stars made by his fingers like some easy little toy he made. Then we see man set in dominion over all the works of his hands. Then we see all those works that God put under man's dominion. All of this declares the name of God. Why? Because it reveals something to us about God himself. It is his name. God's name is revealed to us, not merely as himself, but also by means of his works. God's name then includes his creation and his preservation and working in all things by his decree. Turn over to Psalm 138 verses 1 and 2 concerning the name of God. Page 662, if you would please. What is this name of God? Psalm 138, a psalm of David, verse 1. I will praise thee with my whole heart. Before the gods will I sing praise unto thee. I will worship toward thy holy temple and praise thy name 
for thy loving kindness and for thy truth, for thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. Now notice, David comes to worship the Lord. He's going to praise God, not merely with words, but from the inner man, the whole of his inner man. He's going to be there before the gods, whether that's angels or judges, the mighty ones, whatever they are. He's there worshiping God without reference to them. His attention is directly exclusively at God. Then notice, he's going to worship toward the holy temple of God. God has means of grace. David's going to observe those means of grace. He's going to praise the name of God. Why? For the loving kindness revealed as his name, his attributes, in other words, part of God's name. The truth of God, he's faithful. Every word is amen and reliable. Truth, that's the idea. He's going to praise God for that part of his name. And then notice, God has made one part of his name all the way magnified above the rest. What is that? His word. Now, the Septuagint uses the word, not logos, which is the ordinary word for word, the word of God. It uses the word logion, which is a little book, a little word, or an oracle. So here, God has taken his oracles and he has exalted his oracle above all his name, all his revelation about himself in creation in the declaration of God's name throughout all the earth, the name of God to which the Gentiles are to look in faith, the name of God which is revealed by the little baby who silences the avenger, the name of God with man having dominion over all the works of God's hands, God's work of creation, God's work of providence. Where does God put the logion? Above the rest. He says, this is my name above all others. I notice then God in his word gives us the revelation of revelations, the word of words, the oracles of God, the written word, the scriptures. Those are exalted above all else. Now listen, God's name is revealed in his worship. But how do we know how we ought to worship God? By the oracles. Now, God is glorified in the work of creation. But how do we know how exactly to glorify God for his work of creation? In the oracles. God is honored when men believe and trust in him. But where do we find out what sort of faith we're to have and to whom our faith is to be directed? In the oracles of God. It is the revelation of revelations. It is the word of words. It is the unruled rule for God's worship. Is God's name revealed in his worship? Yes. In his attributes? Yes. Where do we know the worship of God? From the word, from the oracles. Where do we know the attributes of God? From the oracles of God. God has exalted his oracles above all his name. It is the word of of words, the truth of truths. It is the name of names. It is revealing to us even Jesus Christ. Some say, well, I don't want a Bible-centered religion. I want a Christ-centered religion. And Jesus says, then you don't have me if you don't have my oracles. 
You can't have Christ without his word. It's impossible. Which Christ are we talking about? The one that John declared or the one that you fancy in your own mind? They're not the same. The word of God tells us even who our savior is, even what he did to save us, even how we can be reconciled to God through him. God has exalted his oracle above all his name. Let us then love God's name. An unscriptural faith says, well, worship over scripture. We need to have more liturgy. We need to focus on relationship. We need to think about science. What about what I think? How about my feelings? You know, my psychologist told me, no, scripture is the rule over all things else. God has exalted his oracle above all his name. Well, all truth is God's truth and therefore psychology is truth. No, wrong. Psychology is only true insofar as it agrees with the word of God, because if it is God's truth in psychology, guess where the rule is by which we know which part of psychology is true or not? Right here. That's how we know it. It is the unruled rule. It is God's voice speaking. Scripture above liturgy. Scripture above relationship. Scripture above science. Scripture above our thoughts, above our feelings, above the psychotherapist, above all things. He's exalted his oracle above all his name. Let us then hear his word. Let us believe his word. Let us keep and obey and treasure and read and preach and live and be governed by the little book, by the holy oracle. Now, this book of Psalms, do you know what this is? This is a Bible within a Bible. It's a little book within the little book. And it tells us everything that the rest of the book tells us, but in summary fashion. Do you know that's why we sing from it? Because this has everything we need. All of the truth that God wants us to sing are in these psalms, hymns, and songs. Hallow God's name. It's called the book of what? Anybody know? Tehillim. What does that mean? The book of praises. Why? Because it's all about hallowed be thy name, glorifying the Lord our God, declaring his name and making it glorious. That's why we sing these psalms. God has commanded it. Where? In the book in the book that rules the worship, in the oracle he exalted above his name. Well, isn't worship part of his name? Yes, but the word is above it. The word informs it. The word directs it. Please open to Romans 11, page 1144, if you would, please. We'll read verses 33 through 36 of Romans 11. Verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord? Or who hath been his counselor? Or who hath first given to him, and it shall be recompensed unto him again? For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen.
Here, notice the depths of the riches. This is a treasure that you cannot exhaust. You can't get to the bottom of this treasure chest. And in this treasure chest are the wisdom and knowledge of God. William Plummer comments, God's knowledge is his perfect intelligence of all that ever is, ever was, or ever shall be. And of all that could now be, or could heretofore have been, or could hereafter be on any conceivable supposition. In other words, God's knowledge is exhaustive, both of things actual and possible. Well, what could happen if things were different? If I didn't live where I live, if I hadn't married my wife, if I didn't have my kids, what would my life be like? Well, God knows all that. He knows every possible conceivable way things could have been or they could be in the future. And what actually is right now, he knows it all. The depths of the riches of his knowledge. Plummer goes on. His wisdom, being infinite, leads him to choose good and proper ends, also fit and appropriate means to accomplish his ends. Do men believe this? <laughs> no. They don't believe God is wise in appointing the proper ends and using the means that are conducive to this end. No, they do not believe this in the least. This is why men are discontent. This is why men grumble. This is why we feel that things should be different from the way they are, even if we know we shouldn't say it with our tongue. God has an inexhaustible treasure of wisdom and knowledge, and the unfolding of his decree reveals it. How unsearchable are his judgments. Whether that judgment damns the wicked, cuts the Jews out of the olive tree, hardens them, calls them back, calls the Gentiles, whatever it is, from Romans 9 through 11, that's what he's talking about and summing up here. Whatever that is in God's decree, you can't search it out. Don't try. You can't find out the whole of it. You never will. You can't. They are unsearchable. You cannot find them out all the way. His ways are past finding out. Have you ever seen people in a labyrinth or in a maze? This maze you can't get out of. Just when you think you're toward the end, you're back at the beginning. And you could go for aeons, for thousands of years, you'll still be in the same place. You cannot find them out. Man's capacity makes this impossible. Man is finite. God is infinite. God's ways are done in wisdom that is inexhaustible. His knowledge of everything actual and possible far outstrips the teeny tiny bit that we have. We cannot find these out. Furthermore, who has known the mind of the Lord? Verse 34. Well, the answer is no one. It's a rhetorical question. No one knows the mind of the Lord. That's why it's impossible to find his ways out. Who went up to God and counseled him? Lord, you need to consider these things here. Many people pray as if that were the case. Many people think and live as if that were the case. That's why Paul's showing us the vanity of it. You can't counsel God. You're not his superior. You can't grasp his judgments properly. How much less will he come and ask you for advice? Well, let me give you something, God. How about this? No. 
First, because everything you have, where'd you get it? Got it from God. What do you have that you have not received? Well, you can't then give him things first, can you? No. Is God going to owe you a debt? Is he going to take you as some kind of, well, can you just lend me a couple bucks or a little bit of wisdom? Of course not. God owes no one nothing, as they say. All comes from him. We live and breathe and move in him. He gives us life. He gives us breath. He gives us strength. He upholds us by his hand. What are we going to give him? What is it? Name it. There's nothing. Everything man has, he got from God first. And then to sum it up, verse 36, for of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. Now, of him means he is the source. Remember that genitive? We were talking about the Lord's day. It's not the genitive. It's actually a, a special word referring to the day, not to the possessor, the Lord owning the day, but the day itself being associated with the Lord. Here, this is the genitive. God is the source and owner of all things. That's why you can't search out his ways. Where did you come from, God? Where did your life derive its meaning from, God's decree, God's creation, God's providence? He's the source of it all. How are you going to give him something? How are you going to search out his ways? How could you expect God to pay you back like some debtor? God is the source of all things. Through the creation of all things, by the word of his power, through the decree of providence governing all things, his power ruling the forces of nature, he brings the fall and the rise of many. His goodness and severity, they all proceed from him. He's the source of all. And guess what else? Through him are all things. He supports all things, upholds them by the word of his power. We have our being inside of him. And to him are all things. Remember, Jesus said, I am the beginning. And what else? The end. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I'm the source. Of me are all things. And what else? To me are all things. He omits the middle, but it's still there. If he's the beginning, he's the end, he's everything in between. Of him, through him, and to him are all things. God is the final end of all things. All things tend toward God. They fulfill his purposes. They fulfill the end for which they are designed. Do you remember the false teachers? Do they not fulfill a purpose that God has? He wrote them down in his black book. He ordained them to destruction. Don't be surprised. God has a purpose for them. He has a purpose for garbage. He has a purpose for rats. He has a purpose for all things. Because all things go back to him. Whether time or men or angels, God's elect, reprobates the forces of nature all things are designed to fulfill the ends that god has appointed and then notice what ought this to do make us grumble well eh, that can't be true no that's not right hey what about my will Hey, what about what I want? Hey, what about this great Babylon that I have made? Haven't you seen? You didn't do that. I did that. No. 
to whom be glory forever. Amen. Because God is the source, because he is the support, because he is the end of all things, he is glorified in all things. As their source and author, by his eternal decree and his work of creation, the former and maker of all things by almighty power, with his good and powerful sovereign will, upholding all things in his goodness. And he is the end of all things, therefore he is glorified in all things. What do we pray for in the first petition? In the first petition, which is, hallowed be thy name. We pray that God would enable us and others to glorify him in all that whereby he maketh himself known. And note it, that he would dispose all things, how? To his glory, to whom be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray.